Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. In this series, we are conducting one-on-one interviews with anthropologists from different subfields. Today's guest here with me is Dr. Nick Kawa, a cultural anthropologist. Welcome, Dr. Kawa. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Emma. It's fun to be here. We're excited to have you here. So the introduction question that we're starting everybody off with is, can you define anthropology in your own words? Usually I keep it as simple as possible. In my intro lectures, I'll just say anthropology is the study of everything human. And that gives us ample ground to explore all the different sort of ways that anthropologists have approached their research and the discipline. But I think that's the way that I kind of leave it so that it is kind of open-ended. And as we've seen through the history of anthropology, it's insinuated itself into so many different facets of life where humans have unexpectedly popped up. And so I think the study of everything human kind of captures it as best as I can. I like it. So this is one of my favorite questions is the story of origins. So what led you to become an anthropologist? My uncle was an anthropologist. And so unlike a lot of Americans growing up who are oftentimes unaware of what anthropology is as a discipline, my maternal aunt, her husband, Sandy Davis, was a cultural anthropologist. And so from a very early age, I knew about anthropology because my uncle Sandy was doing research in Guatemala with indigenous peoples there, later went on to Brazil, and he would send me photographs and different aspects of people's material culture and shared it with our family. And so that always fascinated me about his work, and I don't think I had a really refined sense of what he was doing as an anthropologist, but I was curious about his life and his profession and how he got to travel to other places, spend time with people who had lives that seemed very distinct from my own. And that curiosity hung with me. So I remember when I was like a freshman in high school, we had these presentations where we had to tell our classmates what we were going to be. And I think most of my friends were talking about their future careers as lawyers or engineers. And I was the only one in the class that said I'd be an anthropologist. (laughs) And I actually then kind of stepped back from anthropology or the dreams of being an anthropologist when I was an undergraduate. And I was really interested in geology and biology, and I was in the natural sciences and physical sciences. And then I think after a semester or two, I just kind of realized that the geologists weren't my people. No offense to geologists, but I was looking for something else. And so I started taking anthropology classes, and I just became an anthropology major because it was the thing that kind of kept my attention. So Dr. Kawa, you had mentioned spending some time in geology before realizing that that wasn't exactly where your interests lied. Today, you consider yourself also an environmental anthropologist, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sure that that early education in undergrad tied into anthropology where you are now. So can you talk a little bit about the nature of your research as it is today? After I spent time working on an environmental education project that was on the U.S.-Mexico borderlands when I was an undergrad at the University of Arizona, I knew I was really interested in environmental questions as an anthropologist. And I think throughout my career, I've always looked at 
human environment or interactions broadly. But I wanted to get away from the United States, and I had been taking classes as an undergraduate in Brazilian Portuguese, which was a language that fascinated me. And so I was hell-bent on getting to Brazil in one way or another, and I found a teaching program that allowed me to teach in Brazil. And where I was placed was in the city of Manaus, which is the largest city in the Brazilian Amazon. And when I arrived there, I was really taken aback because I think all of my images of the Amazon growing up from what I'd seen in television and film was of this overwhelming jungle or dense, pristine forest. And what I found found was I was in the midst of a city of a million and a half people that was dominated by concrete and multinational corporations that were operating in this free trade zone. So it's a very distinct reality living there. And while I was in the city of Manaus teaching English, I also became friends with some folks that were working at the National Institute of Amazonian Research. And I started an internship there. And initially, I was helping translate scientific abstracts from Portuguese to English and accompanying the work of people in a plant ecophysiology lab. But of course, I wanted to somehow find a way back to anthropology. And while I was at the Research Institute, a friend had told me about a project there that was looking at what's known in English as Amazonian dark earth. So there are these dark anthropogenic soils that are found throughout the Amazon basin that are believed to be the product of long-term human settlement through composting of organic refuse and agricultural waste that Amazonian peoples over hundreds and thousands of years radically changed the soils in their immediate environs. And there was a group of soil scientists that were looking at what was distinct about these soils and how people had managed them that had led to these persistent environments of sustained soil fertility. But as an anthropologist or somebody who's trained as a cultural anthropologist, I was curious about who were the contemporary inhabitants that were living on these lands and how are they managing them? And might there be forms of local knowledge that would be of, of benefit for us to understand these distinct soil environments and how people have managed the Amazonian environment in ways that has led to subtly persistent differences over time? And that kind of led me on a different path into research in Amazonia. And I continued working on these questions of the long-term management of soils and how Amazonian peoples had pretty radically shaped the Amazonian environment over hundreds and thousands of years. And in addition to looking at the soil environments for Amazonian dark earths, I was also curious about the different forms of biological diversity in association with these anthropogenic environments. And so I started looking at agrobiodiversity management among smallholder farmers and looking at why do some farmers manage a greater diversity of crops than others? What are these social and cultural factors that might have influenced on the biological diversity that we see in the Amazonian environment today. And that led to lots of different kinds of projects that continue to be really meaningful for me. Most recently, I've been thinking about the lessons of the Amazon and how they might be applied here. So thinking about how people in Amazonia had managed soils in ways that improved their fertility because of composting and various forms of management of organic waste. And part of that includes various types of manure, animal manures, but also human manure and human excreta. And so I've been developing a new project 
project here in Ohio looking at how we in modern industrialized societies manage our waste and whether that can be used to benefit agricultural production. And I'm learning a lot in that process as well. (laughs) The other day, we had seen you and some students working on using compost as a medium for art. Yeah, we had our like poop art day. Well, I mean, in full disclosure, it's it's been composted in a way that's perfectly safe. And we're developing a project on campus that will include visualizations of the system that manages our waste and then returns it into productive and viable agricultural resource and fertilizer. But we've been experimenting with different ways of representing the system and thinking about if we can use that material itself as an artistic resource for our visualizations that we're developing. It was looking pretty good as a watercolor, if I remember correctly. It was actually uh, interacting really well with the water in the paper. Yeah, Yeah. so I have a bunch of watercolors from the local compost products called Comtil. So we have a lot of Comtil watercolors in my office. That's really cool. So now might be a great time to ask you, could you talk a little bit about how your research, including some of the most recent compost watercoloring, if you want to go on that, enhances the broader theme of anthropology? that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. My big question recently is is thinking about the diverse ways in which human societies have managed their waste and done so in ways that we would deem productive or ways that would be deemed sustainable and ways that are not so sustainable. And so looking at Amazonian smallholder farmer households, I looked at a lot of ways in which people are constantly relying on what appear to be forms of waste or refuse, but actually they were oftentimes cycling back into people's agricultural productive systems. And with our recent research looking at the management of human waste in American society, our big question is, can our sanitation system manage our waste in a way that it's more effective for agricultural production and ultimately for building a more sustainable agricultural system? If we're producing 8 million dry tons of human excreta every year and that's going to be incinerated or end up in a landfill, that's not really a sustainable, productive system. And what we learned from past human societies in various parts of the world is that people oftentimes found ways to manage those resources and reintegrate them into agricultural systems in ways that were wildly productive. You can look at case studies from East Asia in which there was an entire network of what's referred to as night soil trade. So night soil is a euphemism for poop, for human excreta. And that was really an essential fertilizer that contributed to the growth of early modern Chinese agriculture. And up until the mid-20th century, it continued to be really relied upon as a primary source of fertilization. You know, with the introduction of chemical fertilizers and other sources of fertilization, that kind of went by the wayside. But I think as we're looking at a planet in which we're coming to grips with the fact that it is one dominated by finite resources, we really need to think more carefully about more sustainable use of fertilization and human poop is one sustainable resource that we have available to us. And I think there are various movements in the United States and other parts of the world to move in that direction and look at alternative forms of sustainable agricultural practice relying on resources that were up until recently seen as waste. 
Do you get a chance to work with any sort of policy makers or getting involved with policy as a part of this? I'm not directly involved in policy, but we are working with the city of Columbus here in central Ohio. And so two of our project members are people working in the city and in the state level on these issues. And so I think for them, in our conversations, what's really been quite exciting is that they see the opportunity to build partnerships with OSU to do research that they don't have the funds to do. And in turn, we're learning a whole lot about the processes behind the production of compost that's derived from sanitation sludge. And so that's been a really fun experience because it isn't just academic anthropology sort of on the sidelines making observations about other people's lives. We're very much integrated into initiatives here in the city and trying to figure out ways that we can best support those, but also potentially learn something new together as a research team that's composed of both academics and people who are everyday practitioners and people who are working for the city in uh, wastewater treatment and management. That's really awesome. So we've touched on it in a couple of different ways, looking at the different populations that you've worked with and talking about the different areas of the world. But I'm wondering if we could take a minute to ask, how does your research contribute to our understanding of human diversity, both in the past and the present? So in other words, how is your research tied to current debates about human diversity? As we said at the onset, if anthropology is about the study of everything human, one of the things that I'll often tell students in my intro courses is that as you delve into anthropology, we realize that there are so many different ways of being human in the world. And oftentimes we tacitly accept the ones that are presented to us or we're sort of socialized or enculturated in certain ways. And we take those everyday practices and behaviors and beliefs for granted. And I think what anthropology does that is so valuable to me personally, but I think to the people that engage with it, is that it forces us to continually think about, is the way that I'm going about doing things, like managing my waste or thinking even about my waste, is this the best way that I could be living my life or is this the best way to live collectively? And so In my research in particular, that's always kind of focused on human environmental relations, I've always been interested in how can the experiences of different groups of human beings and how they relate to their direct environment whether it be the botanical species that they interact with on a daily basis or the soils that lie beneath their feet, how do those relationships and anthropological study of such help us to think differently about our relations to others and the broader environment in ways that might be beneficial to people in different parts of the world? So I think as an American raised in suburbia, stuck between seas of corn and then on the other side, never ending parking lots and strip malls. That was a very alien environment for me. And so to be able to spend time with peoples with very different environments and very different relations to the different sort of species 
species that made up those environments, it's forced me to really think about different ways of being human, of different ways of living in the world, of different ways of managing or relating to my environments. And so anthropology always opens up this possibility for us to think about living differently. And I think there is also this kind of utopian ideal that's embedded in there is that there's this idea that drawing from the lessons from others that we can also learn how to live better as individuals, but also as broader human groups, as collectives. At least that's what I hope anthropology can still offer to us. So we've talked a lot about managing waste and managing our own waste. So Mm -hmm. do you actually have any recommendations for us as modern humans living in, well, we do have listeners all over the world, which is awesome. (laughs) So I'm sure what's really cool is that I'm sure that several of our listeners have different ways of dealing with waste, whether they live in the city, whether they live in suburbs, whether they live in rural. But do you have any suggestions that your research has given you for us? The first thing it's forced me to do is really question what I deem to be waste. And There's a guy, Joe Jenkins, who I had the great pleasure of interviewing who wrote this book called The Humanor Handbook. And he said, the question, what we deem is waste is really a question of human choice. We choose to throw things away rather than find ways to reuse them. And I would just add to Joe's point that it's not just about individual decisions. There are also broader structures that force us to maintain those behaviors. So I think there's also collective decisions we're making. And in the case of human excreta, we've collectively decided that this is bad and that we're going to channel it away and we don't want to really deal with it. And in a lot of modern industrialized societies, we have developed infrastructures that enable us to completely ignore it as sort of a non-issue. And what I see is a contemporary ecological crisis that we're facing on the planet. I think we need to re revisit a lot of these questions or revisit a lot of these everyday behaviors because within them, I think we can find lots of different pathways for more sustainable forms of living and and maybe even more equitable forms of living, or at least that's what I would hope. It's forced me to question just the very kind of ways in which we categorize what's, what's deemed to be waste. And really, waste is something that we have an attitude toward as one that's a lack of care. And what it seems to me now is what we really need is greater investment in care of our relationships with those around us, which can be humans, but also non-humans and the worlds that are within our immediate control. So caring for your shit sounds like an odd (laughs) aphorism, but I think embedded within that is a broader sensibility about care for our immediate environs, but also a much broader world. And when we carelessly discard things that leads us into the current situation we're in, in which we have lots of environmental problems that demand remedy. I think that's a really thought-provoking way to actually look at things. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Kawa, for coming and joining us today to talk about your research and anthropology as a whole and how it contributes to the conversation of diversity. It was really great to have you. Thank you so much, Emma. It was really fun talking to you as well. And to all of our listeners, 
stay tuned. We will have another episode. So far, you've heard from our biological anthropologist, Dr. Cruz. You heard from our cultural anthropologist, Dr. Kawa. And in our next episode, you will hear from our archaeologist, Dr. Field. In the meantime, while you're waiting for this episode to come out, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us, OSU. Or check out our website, anthropology.com. OSU.edu. And don't forget to leave a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. (laughs) 